Are you wanting to create a highly prosperous photography business doing what you love? Or maybe you have a great business already and want to up your game? Then you're in the right place. Master craftsman photographer Lucy Dumas and her guests are here to support you on your journey. Now here's your hostess and tour guide, Lucy. Alone, we can do so little. Together, we can do so much. And that's a quote by Helen Keller. So I am super excited to have Nathan Holwitz on the show, and he is the king of the Boca podcast. So it's bocapodcast.com. He's an entrepreneur. He's in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was a wedding photographer for over a decade, and now he's the founder and CEO of photographersedit.com. And I want to ask him some editing questions today. So I'm hoping I'm channeling your questions uh, as you're listening and he can answer a bunch of those and newbiepodcast.com. I need to learn about that. And he's always working on his next brand. (laughs) So (laughs) I like that. He's like a shark. Just you keep moving, right? Absolutely. There's always an opportunity. Yeah. So thank you, Nathan, for being on my show. Truly my privilege. So I would love a quick um, share about how you got into the photography business. Like, did you have a camera as a kid? Was, uh, well, I- I'm not going to put words in your mouth. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> what's your early years background that led you to be where you are today? Well, my dad was a hobbyist photographer, mm-hmm. and family pictures were always a priority, but he also enjoyed photographing scenery. And Mm -hmm. so maybe there's a little bit of that built into my genes somewhere. Mm -hmm. But in uh, 2000 or so, I I got a camera and uh, it was a little consumer level SLR film camera. And I started taking pictures. My partner at the time put together a portfolio of images from those pictures that I'd been photographing. And a friend of mine saw that portfolio and recommended me to their friend to photograph a wedding. And so I I had my camera, my little Minolta camera, Mm -hmm. and I borrowed another similar camera, the same camera from somebody that I knew. So I had two cameras. I put color film in one and black and white film in the other and went and photographed my first wedding. And that's how I got into it. Right on. My first good camera was a Minolta as well. Oh, look at that. An XG7. Great minds think alike. Yes. Because he was so into photography in that way, we had a wonderful catalog of images from our childhood. And uh, it's always fun to go back and look at those old pictures. Mm -hmm. Are they in books or are they in bins and piles? What are they? I have an album. So that was, it was one of my prized possessions, really. My mom gave me my photo, my childhood photo album. Mm. And then I took that that album and scanned the individual pictures in as well. So I always have access to the digital version of it, but then I have the physical copy as well. Mm-hmm. Do you think that really set you up to when you started doing people photography and weddings to understand the treasure you were providing for people? I don't know that I ever made that direct connection, but there was a, a creative outlet, number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, I... I relate to and connect with people pretty well, pretty easily. And so I think being in the photographic industry and getting to interact with clients came relatively naturally. And then I I grew up um, in 
ministry. My parents were missionaries. And that was what my parents, or at least my dad anyway, kind of had in mind for me for the long run. Photography was kind of this maybe subtle, subconscious, even um, rebellious break from that. I wanted Mm -hmm. to do something different. And um, so that's kind of a funny backstory, the side story to to the whole conversation. But yeah, I I think ultimately it's just, I enjoyed connecting with people. And I still look back at my wedding photography career kind of in awe, honestly, at the way that our clients let us in to their lives on such an intimate level and allowed us to become friends and close friends at that Mm -hmm. with them and to be part of their wedding day. And it sounds so cliche, but I I still see it that way. I think it's really incredible how really quite lucky actually to get to be a part of those days the way that we, that we did. I totally know what you're talking about. That intimacy is is awesome for those of us that are, you know, people, people and connect uh, is one of the blessings for sure. It's beautiful. So what denomination of missionary or what, what community did your dad's preaching, teaching? Sorry, let me say this properly. <laughs> uh, no, you're totally fine. My, my parents were Baptist missionaries. They were with a, a Baptist mission organization and I grew up in Japan. We were there for about 10 years. Oh, wow. And um, it's just a, an absolutely beautiful country. If you've never been before, beautiful people, incredible food. If you've never been before, I highly recommend it. But yeah, I spent about 10 years of my life there, learned to speak the language fluently. And um, so I, naturally, that was a really significant part of my life and my upbringing. Awesome. Ah. So guess what? My dad was a preacher too. Oh, no way. Yeah. I think too, my my tendency to enjoy people and interacting with people was largely formed in my earlier years because we did spend about 10 years in Japan. But when we would come back to the States, we'd travel, go to these different churches that were supporting us. And so we were constantly meeting new people all the time, staying in different people's homes. And so we were very flexible as kids. I have have three younger brothers, learned to be very flexible, just kind of go with the flow. But we also learned to interact with people, meet new people, have conversations at, at relatively young ages. Mm-hmm. And I think that was really instrumental in kind of helping develop me into the human that I am today. We have so much in common <laughs> <laughs> because I think it really helps with the podcast. Mm. I'm someone that loves a great conversation. And just like you, I can be in a situation with people and find something to talk about and and where I'm genuinely interested. I don't know. Do you relate to that part? Absolutely. Yeah. So. Hey, if anyone's out there and they want to be a photographer or a podcaster, make sure your parents are in the, in you know preacher teacher mission. Right? <laughs> uh, too late. So before we get into actual, like, let's dig into some uh, photography topics. Have you read the book or seen the series called Pachinko? No, I haven't. All right. So it's a saga about a Korean family that moves to Japan to be a missionary in Japan. And really? it's a from the main character when she's young all the way till she's a grandma. So it's a very I like the book more than the series, but series is pretty good too. So I'm gonna have to look into that. Yeah, Pachinko for anybody listening in who doesn't know, Pachinko is is the Japanese version of essentially slot machines, right? It's mm-hmm. it's a um and, and you go to if you walk down the streets in certain cities, you'll walk past these massive I say massive. I mean, they're they're like um, department store, grocery store size buildings that have just rows on rows of 
they call it pachinko is, is the Japanese word, but the pachinko machines. And you hear the, the loud clanging and banging and mm. the noises coming from these so-called slot machines. And um, they're quite popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to the book, it's a little bit of a shady career for people to be into. Is that what you felt? Like I was, well, I was quite young, so I can't speak to a lot of the details. I would, I never, in fact, I don't even know if I ever played on a machine before. I just remember walking past those very loud pachinko <laughs> store <laughs> shops. Yeah, exactly. And making those sounds. Yep. You got I love it. it. I love it. All right. So let's get into some of my actual questions. Um, although, you know, this is fun <laughs> to is, yeah. discover our backgrounds Absolutely. that are similar. So I know you have a business called photographersedit.com. And although when I have a vendor, I don't want to make it a huge commercial, but what kinds of things does a company like yours do for people? Custom editing. You know, a lot, a lot of times when the conversation around outsourcing or delegating editing to an employee or to an outside company, when that conversation comes up, one of the biggest apprehensions that photographers have is it's not going to match my style. And my brand, I have this particular look and I want the images to look a certain way. And when I give it to the clients, they need to look this way every time. We specialize in matching photographers' editing style. So we offer custom editing that matches the photographer's style. Wedding and portrait photographers primarily, but we have we do some commercial work as well. And we've been in business now for, wow, it's about 14 years, I guess. Mm. Yeah, I think I remember seeing you when you first came out and thinking, huh. I wonder if I could release the grip on my work enough. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the big to, challenge, right? To do that. So I would love to dig into the opportunities that are available to photographers who realize they're just working too hard. And there are people who can do a lot for us and take things off our plate so that we can go out and we can get more clients and we can make new friends and we can get a whole bunch more income. So I'd love to have you kind of tell us, being in the editing world, some different options that different services might do. Does that sound like a fair question? Absolutely. Yeah. So culling, it's, it's interesting, actually. I've heard from photographers quite a bit that culling seems to take a lot of their time. So if you're a wedding photographer in particular, you're photographing two, three, four thousand images, maybe even more in some cases. Just getting rid of the images that you don't want to give to your client can be a big enough challenge as it is, right? We're not even thinking mm -hmm. about editing yet. So that is certainly one of the, the options out there. Then the next probably most common one, and, and actually probably the most popular one in general, is just to be able to give your images over to somebody that can color correct those images, crop them if necessary, straighten if necessary, maybe take some noise out and deliver a nice finished image to the end client. So color correction. And then retouching. And you know, there are a lot of different kind of versions of the retouching services. You can do retouching in Lightroom. You can do retouching in Photoshop. And there are countless other pieces of software out there as well that um, you can do retouching with. So there are different levels of retouching services that can be offered as a result. Okay. So if I can summarize that, there are companies that are specifically geared towards taking your raw images and then selecting the winners. And then maybe those people also do some color correcting and the basics so that you've got an edited down version to work with your clients. Is that 
Correct. Yeah. Possibility one. And I can see how that saves a lot of time. So have you played around with the AI versions of those kinds of opportunities? I have. Absolutely. Yeah. There, the technology is developing. It mm-hmm. still falls short of what an individual editor can do, but there's certainly some some benefit there, especially for photographers that are looking for really an expensive option, right? Something that okay. they can that allows them to maintain control because they're they get to see it in front of them right away, and that doesn't cost a lot. It's it's definitely a cost effective option, and again, the technology continues to improve. It just doesn't quite offer the level of editing that you can get from an individual editor. Okay, so then the second opportunity is to have a company or person basically go through your winners and color balance them to the tones that you like and uh, make sure the highlights and shadows and the exposure and everything's just right. Maybe crop if that's something you want them to do. And then they hand over maybe a nice high-end JPEG for all of those for you to then what I would do in that case is show my clients, have them pick what they want, uh, you know, get the sales going. So is that right? Yeah. Usually those companies that are offering culling and color correction are kind of one in the same. Mm-hmm. Where the distinction starts to happen in some cases is retouching companies. Standalone retouching companies um, are kind of an additional service or a separate company in some cases. And usually the culling and color correction is handled in, in one place. Okay. So then there's, if I heard you correctly, then there's companies that fall in place with what you do, I'm assuming, which is to take images that are like the gold and the winners and do the editing, retouching, zit removal, head swaps, fill in the blanks. Is that? Well, we're, we actually do it all. So oh. we we offer the calling service, we offer the color, the color correction service, although it's highly customized for the photographer, and then we also offer retouching. Ah, so a company like yours, if someone just wanted one piece of it, do they usually say nope, it's all or nothing, or or yes, we'll do for you whatever it is you need, and what you don't want to do, we won't do. <laughs> most co- yeah, most companies offer a combination of services. So usually gives the photographer an option. They can choose what service or services that they want. Okay, great. Okay. So I think the hardest thing for me in thinking about outsourcing is how to teach a company what I like. So mm. can you speak to that about, you know, I know this is from your experience and other other editing people might do this differently, but I'd love to know sort of your process and path to sure. perfection. PPP. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, this is an ongoing learning curve for me, actually. Just the general idea of how to communicate when you're delegating something, right? It's not just specific to editing. Anytime you're going to hire a service or a task out to someone else, whether in-house or, or to a third-party company, you have to figure out how to communicate what it is that you want. Actually, before you do even do that, you have to be clear about what it is that you want mm. because confusion leads to confusion, right? So be clear about what it is that you're looking for. And then you have to figure out how to communicate what it is that you're looking for in a way that the other person or company understands it. And so those are some interesting challenges to face just as a business owner in general. Um, there are a couple of different, two different ways really 
uh, actually, we'll, we'll categorize them to three different ways that you can communicate your preferences to a company. One is just by text. I could send an email or I can you know, fill in some bullet point notes uh, on, a, on a web page and communicate what I like to that company or to that person via text or words. That is nice because I think it comes naturally for a lot of people, especially when they have the ability to take the time to type those things out. But the big, big caveat and where it, it has its drawbacks is, let's just say, for example, I tell you that I like warm white balance. Mm-hmm. Well, what that means to me, what that looks like to me is in some cases even vastly different than the next photographer who says that they like warm white balance, right? So words mean different things to different people, particularly in the context of imagery. So the next, really the best option or the next best option is to be able to share examples, visual examples of an editing style. So you might be able to upload or share what your image looks like straight out of the camera and then how you would edit that same image using a preset or whatever else you might do to that image, but how you would process it. So now that company or that individual editor has both the original to compare against then how you would process that image in that particular lighting scenario. And they've got a visual representation of what it is that you're looking for. So that's another way. Okay. Quick question on that. Sure. How does somebody begin to understand what they really prefer? It's coming from when I first started in this business, I used a lab that was a mile from my house. Mm. And I never quite loved what I was getting out of it. It's a pro lab. Mm. Um, And I thought it was just how my work was going to look. And then I moved closer to another lab and just proofs. Here's the NIGS process. Give me proofs. Were beautiful and exactly what I like. I like rich, saturated color, peaches and cream skin. I liked Fujifilm more than Kodak at the time because I liked the little crisp, you know, saturated tones. And so I began to work with my lab personally, and they had uh, my favorite pictures posted, like like six examples of what I liked. So that before they delivered the proofs to me and the finished products, you know, folks, this is in the dark ages when dinosaurs <laughs> roamed the earth and there was film. So they began to learn what I liked very much like I'm sure what, what you do with sure. your clients. And then something I, cause I'm like, I'm a color freak. It's one of my passions, hobbies. I began to realize that different countries have di- different color preferences. Did you know that? Interesting. How so? So the reason we were always encouraged not to buy what's called gray uh, film, gray, there's a second word that goes to that. Like gray market film? You're gray market about? is mm-hmm. because they were color balanced for different countries. Different skin tones, maybe? Mexico tends to like, you know, this is pre-digital, deep and warm. Mm. Midwest, like Miller's, was always a little on the light and beige side. Mm. California labs knew that we liked those rich, saturated colors. And uh, I began to understand the color preference. There's not like a right way. But the reason my first lab was not a win for me is because we're San Diego, right on the border. And more than half of their clients were from Tijuana. So Mm. their color default was to be 
too warm for my taste. So yeah, I found that so, so interesting. Um, and then, you know, my head's a spin right now. <laughs> now, so here's the other tricky part is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, when you get, uh, if you're working with a company like photographers at plural.com or another one, there's what you get back and then there's what the lab might print and they all have profiles differently. Have you, I still want to get to your number three, but can you talk a little about some of those challenges or are they for you? Not usually. There have been instances where a photographer might give us or we've asked for a particular profile if they, if a photographer is working with a print lab in order to make sure that our machines are in sync as far as the way that they're set up for color. For the most part, it's not an issue. Mm. Um, I think that there is an interesting conversation to be had, though, when it comes to the amount of weight that photographers put on color and how important it actually is to the client in the end as well. Mm -hmm. And and that's a bit of a tricky conversation because the last thing that myself as a, both a photographer and an editor um, would want to suggest is that we need to, or that, that we would compromise the quality of the image, especially as it relates to color. But I think also one of the challenges when it comes to delegating editing to somebody else or to another company is we're concerned it's not gonna look exactly the way that we process it. There are multiple companies out there. Certainly my company is capable of matching an editing style, but if there are slight nuanced differences, the question is, will the end client actually notice those differences? If we're willing to, to make that say 3% compromise that mm -hmm. the client isn't going to prioritize the way that we do, then I think that photographers are going to be able to more readily give up that editing process. Mm, I totally, <laughs> you blew my mind with that so much. I have so many thoughts. I'm having trouble like, like forming what I'm trying to say. So, uh, well, I'll just add something to that too, Lucy. I mean, behind me, and I'm pointing, and we're on video right now. I know this is audio for, for most uh, of your audience, but behind me, there is a refrigerator. And on that refrigerator in, in my kitchen is uh, a selection of snapshots of myself, mostly with my kids, but with mm -hmm. friends, those that are close to me. Most of those images are not color balanced. Some of them aren't sharp. Mm -hmm. Some of them aren't framed particularly well. I own an editing company and I was a professional photographer for over a decade and I don't care. Yeah. I, what I care about is the significance of the people in those images and even just being able to look at them. I'm mm -hmm. not analyzing their, their color accuracy or how sharp they are, or how they've been framed, because it just doesn't matter. And so we need to put things in perspective in this conversation, I think. And, and the only reason it really matters in the end is because it will help determine whether or not a photographer is willing to, as you pointed out earlier, give up one of the most time-consuming elements of running a photography business mm -hmm. for the sake of then being able to focus their time on things that will actually grow their company. So right. that's why it matters. Yeah. And that, that makes total sense to somebody like me who's a recovering perfectionist. <laughs> Same. <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> and I learned uh, I can still aim for excellence. Yes. And I also learned that uh, if someone gets it right at least 80% of the time, right being a relative air quote thing, <laughs> sure. then like in school, that's a B and a B is passing. Mm. So I work on giving grace to, you know, not 
to my labs, to framers, to anybody, uh, giving them a little leeway to do things either that are mistakes or just not what I'm looking for. So I love that, you know. And RB is a client's A, right? Oh, yeah. And then some. And then yeah. some. Yeah. So the other thing I, you know, part of why I was like, after you said all that good stuff, I had like two different thoughts at the same time. So they were <laughs> like, wait, which, what, who? <laughs> so I notice, and and I have to respectfully say, I notice this more with newer photographers and photographers who seem not to be having their photographs get printed, mm. that creating their editing style is a big thing. And that if someone doesn't happen to like it, they're not going to redo it for their clients. This is my editing style. Right. And my perspective is that I think it echoes what you said. People want to look happy or that they care about each other. They want to look, in the most part, thinner and younger than maybe they are, <laughs> or at least not older and fatter. <laughs> and, you know, have a basically pleasing image and that the editing style, what I think I heard you say is, and I would agree with this, whether you say that or not, <laughs> is our clients don't care that much. Thoughts on that editing style <laughs> trend? Yeah. Well, so first of all, it's I don't want to take anything away from a photographer's editing style. I, I I still remember as a working photographer how much I enjoyed playing in Lightroom with presets and coming out with a particular look. It's fun, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? So not to take away from that, but you're absolutely right. I think really the question is, who are we serving? Are we serving ourselves? Or are we serving the client? And if we're serving the client and we're trying to build a business that not only serves our existing clients, but will continue to attract additional clients, then the question is, what do they want? Mm -hmm. And that's the, that when the conversation goes in that direction, then some of these nuanced conversations about, you know, there's a little too much cyan or magenta in this image or that, that stuff just kind of fades away because it doesn't matter for the sake of serving the client. Now, if we're having a conversation about what we prefer, Sure, we can talk about oh. those details. If we're talking about taking a, an image to print competition, I get it. We're going to talk about those details, but that's a conversation in the context of, or we'll call it in the room of photographers. Mm -hmm. That's not about serving our clients. And so learning to make those distinctions is really, really important. I love that. I'm thinking a lot of photographers maybe feel like someone's hired them because their work is light and airy or dark and moody or you know, fill in the blank of a style when really they liked you and they liked your work and they trust you and they feel like you'll do a good job. And that down on the list is whether it's, you know, a certain style. Thoughts on that? Agreed. I'll, I'll, the only other thing I would add to that is experience. Um, right. And yeah, part of, part of what creates an experience for the end client is you, your personality, the, the aura that you create and in interacting with the client but yeah, the, the editing style is just, like you said, it's further down the list. It's not that it doesn't matter in any way, but the client doesn't see those images the way that we see them. So just be able to make the distinction between what the client sees and what you or other photographers see, and then adjust the way that you run your business accordingly. And I'm telling you that the amount of stress that will come off your shoulders as a result mm. is going to be significant. Mm. 
Yes. Oh, I just felt better just hearing you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So how to delegate. And then I segued. So I want to swing on back. You can communicate by text. You can communicate by visuals. And you said there was a third way. Yeah. The third way to communicate an editing style would be by processing a few images in Lightroom, I think is a really great tool. There are different tools to use, but Lightroom is the most popular at the moment. Processing a few images in Lightroom and then sharing that catalog with whoever is going to edit your images. The, the editor then will be able to look at the history of how you process that image or that set of images, use that as a point of reference, and then process the remainder of the images accordingly. Mm. Makes total sense. Now, I had asked you how we figure out, and maybe maybe we just decided it just doesn't matter, but how to figure out what our preference is. Do, do you have any tips for people that are just starting to realize like maybe right now their minds are being blown, understanding that, you know, different countries like and prefer color differently. Any thoughts on how someone can develop the style that they're going to really enjoy delivering to their clients? Well, not only, uh, Lucy, I would say that editing styles might vary, preferences may vary by culture, but it's even going to vary over time, right? I mean, I've been mm -hmm. in the industry long enough to to look back and think about, like, I, I remember picking up actually an engagement session portfolio, so an engagement uh, album from my office table, coffee table one day, starting to flip through the pictures. These are my pictures. I process them and I'm looking through them and I'm my mouth practically dropped open <laughs> because they looked awful. The editing, the, the preset or Photoshop action that I had used on the images skewed the colors every which way and it just looked it looked bad i think it had it added a, a, a like a darkening effect around the edges um kind of a vignette effect mm -hmm. and it was just it was bad and this happened in, in a relatively short amount of time right where there was a particular style that was popular here and then give it six months or a year and then that changed to something else and we've seen that repeat over and over and over again so to put so much emphasis on an editing style when we know that those trends are going to continue to morph and change just doesn't make a lot of logical sense. So this may seem simplistic, but my recommendation when it comes to landing on a style is just to pick one mm. and go with it. And I, the only kind of caveat that I would add to that is understand that trends will come and go, leaning towards something that is a little bit cleaner, more classic in nature, in that it doesn't, it is not overprocessed. Um, it's going to pay dividends in the long run for two reasons. One, you won't repeat the process that I just talked about, which is picking up that album and you know mm -hmm. your mouth drops open because it looks so terrible. But two, your clients, you got to think about your clients in five years, 10 years, 15 years, when they open those albums, are they going to look at those images and roll their eyes because it has some weird green effect in the skin tones because that was the popular preset at the time. Mm -hmm. You want to give them images that are going to be classic in nature and that they'll stand the test of time and still look great 15, 20 years down the road. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> so early in my wedding career, everybody was doing double exposures. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the way you had to do that is that you had to have a separate camera mm -hmm. with a little, I, I had this little um, filter that covered half the photograph. Mm -hmm. And so during the ceremony, I would take a picture of the bottom left or I put the ceremony bottom left and then I would 
click the shutter so that it didn't advance because I didn't want to spend the money to have it done in the lab. That was cheap. <laughs> <laughs> and then I put that away. And then when I got the bride and groom on the altar, then I'd have them stand in front of the candles and look down and I'd put it in the upper mm-hmm. left corner. Mm-hmm. And I hated doing that. But I thought you had to do that to be a professional. And then one day I was like, as God is my witness, I'll never do a double exposure again. (laughs) And I started developing my own style and more outdoor and more romantics Mm. and things like that. And now I know people look back over those old albums and go, oh, my God, that's so 70s. And we, we would joke about the bride and the brandy snifter, which that had to be done at the photo lab. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, I love that I can look back on work I did 25 years ago and I still use them as samples. I still, you know, will send them off if I'm going to be on a podcast. I'll send out some pictures because I developed my own style and my own mm-hmm. taste and mm-hmm. and so yeah, I love hearing that. But yeah, it, I I had a client the wedding that I did in Hawaii that was the bride who I'd done her first communion. I made up one of those <laughs> things just for fun. And it was like, well, it's, it's fun to play around, I think, and, and experiment even with a few images. And even if we're just doing it for ourselves, but yeah. I, I think to your point, being, being able to understanding that I, I think about my, my parents' wedding album, for example, you talk about those double exposures and looking down on the candles mm-hmm. and the, yeah, absolutely. And we do, we kind of laugh, but we have to keep that in mind then as we're creating images for our clients. So have fun, experiment, do something here and there, but understand that that, is, that should be kind of the anomaly, the kind of the, the extra thing, mm-hmm. and that we should focus on delivering a really classic set of images that are going to look good 10, 15, 20, 50 years from now. Yeah, yeah. I think maybe five years or maybe even 10 years ago, the um, lens flare was like lens flare, lens flare. And they're beautiful yeah. images with that. But the whole yeah. album is going to date. <laughs> so I love that. <laughs> I know there was something I was wanting to ask Nathan about JPEG versus RAW. Oh. <laughs> so what's your thoughts? Honestly, in the end, if I'm able to deliver a high quality image to my client, I, I don't care. You know, it, it, 10 years ago, it was a different conversation. Mm. These days, what the cameras can do in, in camera, in the software, and what they can produce, even out of our phones for that matter, is mind-boggling. Um, so do you have more range and capability, particularly in shadows and highlights, certainly in color, if you, if you really just screw an image up? Do you have more control with the RAW file? Absolutely. But fortunately, the cameras are good enough right now that that may happen 1% of the time. And so what you can produce out of the camera, in many cases, may not warrant the additional file space or the headache of conversion later on uh, of shooting in RAW. So I, I don't, I'm not kind of hardline either way. The only caveat to that, of course, being that you do have more control in post-production with the RAW file. Okay. So in your, as your company is editing a lot of different photographers work and i'm guessing some send raw some send the jpegs yes most photographers are shooting in raw and and again yeah i don't want to minimize the significance of course of the control that you have there if we're just talking the the file type you know one versus the other just as a basic conversation 
again, I don't, I don't tend to lean either way as long as you're able to produce a, a great finished image for your client with whatever your workflow is. When it comes to post-production, no question, the raw file, you have way more control. And so photographers might shoot in whatever the default raw format is in camera, of course, and then they can upload that into a Lightroom catalog and then send the Lightroom catalog with the raw files or send the Lightroom catalog with what are called smart previews built there into Lightroom. Mm. And it gives the whoever's doing the editing work um, a lot more control than, of course, say that we'd have with JPEG files. Okay, so it's easier for editors to receive the raw, except for like I have a friend that she never gets it wrong. So there's, you know, her her work is very controlled. It's studio, so mm-hmm. it's a waste of space for her to to shoot raw all the time because she's not going to accidentally forget to change her settings or, you know, some of the things that when we're out there doing candids or doing on location portraits, you can like, you know, forehead slap. realize. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, shoot. (laughs) Um, So thank you for that. So from the editing perspective, raw is probably the smarter bet unless someone is like really able to, make sure that their exposures are pretty much in range. Yeah, I have a good wedding photographer, a wedding photographer friend of mine that I've known for years and years. If I threw his name out there, you you would recognize it probably immediately, um, who has never shot a raw image. And, Mm. you know, he built quite an illustrious career as a wedding photographer um, and never actually shot a raw image. If you're intentional in the work that you're doing and you're careful and, uh, of course, shooting manually, can in some cases help minimize those mistakes as well. But if you're very careful and intentional, it's not that it's required, um, but the, the post-production does benefit from that raw file. It just gives you a lot, lot wider dynamic range when it comes to color and highlight and shadow. Right, right. Now, back when I shot on Hasselblads with film, we had to meter. Mm-hmm. We had to get it pretty close. Mm-hmm. I learned that it was better with film to air on overexposure. Hmm. that half a stop under and that the skin tone was kind of muddy. Right. But even up to three stops over and my lab could get some nice, clean, (laughs) good looking skin. And, you know, I'm technology is the least favorite part of this business for me. Hmm. So, you know, but that meter was always around my neck or always with my assistant because we, we didn't have the freedom that we have now. So, yeah. How about sharing what a proper histogram looks like? Are you game to give a little histogram 1A? <laughs> we could do the like 101 of 101 if you'd mm-hmm. like to. Yeah, I I don't I don't speak a whole lot on on histogram. Your like, traditionally your histogram I think is supposed to have a nice little bump in the middle, right? Where mm-hmm. everything kind of evens out in the middle. But beyond that, honestly, I've never even really used, I know that even in Lightroom, you can go in and make adjustments using the histogram itself, uh, which is kind of interesting. I don't think a lot of photographers use Lightroom that way. But I've I've just gone, I've, what I tend to do when I'm going to process an image is I'm looking to, there's a little keyboard shortcut, I think it's Command-J in Lightroom, where you can activate blown highlight and shadow detail. I'm going to adjust mm-hmm. highlight and shadow detail accordingly. And um, ultimately, I'm I'm eyeing the image. I'm not looking too much to the histogram. I know you can get super technical there, but again, to our earlier conversation, I don't 
I don't tend to get super technical because I don't think it matters in the bigger picture. Okay, great. So I'll just say for people that are wondering what I had in mind too, or you know what I like people to pay attention to is what happens in the on the ends, not the middle, because that's where the highlight and shadow is, and whatever right. happens in the middle, you know, and a white egg and a black background isn't going to have a a mountain, but if you expose it right, there'll be detail in the highlight and shadow. Mm-hmm. But like you said, with shooting raw, there's like two stops of light on either end, unless we blow something out so much that there's just nothing there. But uh, generally, yeah, anyway, so. Yeah, you could definitely go like down a deep, dark rabbit hole yeah. with the technical stuff. I, I don't, again, I don't mean to minimize that. I'm thinking more like a client when I think about the amount mm-hmm. of time I'm giving to something that way. So it, as long as I'm maintaining that highlight and shadow detail, of course, there are different ways to go about looking at that histogram included, then then I'm good to go at that yeah. point. And I, yeah. I don't tend to get overly technical in the process. Right. Yeah. I I just, I keep my histogram on on the back mm-hmm. of my camera, mm-hmm. just so that if my brain is think, not functioning well, my eyeballs can look down and go, oh yeah, I'm okay. Phew. And then just keep going because I can get a little lost in the numbers sometimes. Totally understand. Yeah. Okay. I'm looking at our time. I know workflow is something that you're really big on. Have we kind of already covered some workflow tips or is that a whole other little bunny bunny trail to go down? (laughs) It depends on which direction you go. I mean, editing certainly falls under that workflow umbrella. Mm-hmm. But I, I think the, the conversation, and, and maybe it's for another day, we can when we have a little bit more time. But the conversation that needs to be had when it comes to to workflow is, what are my end goals as an individual? Number one, mm-hmm. as a result, and when I say end goals, I'm talking about financial goals, and then the amount of time that I want to spend making that money. So if if I want to make, I'm just going to throw a random number out there. If I want to make a half a million dollars a year, but it takes me 80 hours a week to to make that half a million dollars a year it's kind of pointless, right? So mm-hmm. I need to make an adjustment to the financial goal for the sake of the time goal. I want to decide how much I need to make to pay the bills, put money in the bank, have a vacation or two, buy a toy or two. That's my financial goal. And then I'm thinking about that in the short term as in the next year, but also in the in the mid to long term, five to 10 years and beyond. Now I need to determine the business model that will enable me to make that money, but I only want to work, let's say, 30 hours a week. Mm -hmm. So what is the business model that will enable me to work 30 hours a week and make that amount of money? I find a balance between the two. Once I've done those things, and and you you might or somebody else listening in might say, wait a minute, she just asked about workflow. What are you talking about? All this financial goal stuff. But as business owners, we need to think on a bigger picture level if we want to create a sustainable business that is going to bring a certain sense of happiness and fulfillment in our life, right? And that starts with the finances and the amount of time it takes to make those finances. Once we've done that, that enables us to decide the business model, certainly pricing. There's other conversations there. And then that will determine the workflow, what it is that we spend our time on. That's workflow. Every single photographer running a business has workflow. The question is, is it relevant to their long-term goals? And are they running that workflow in a way that is as efficient as possible? Are they spending their time wisely with the things that they're doing day to day? So that's kind of the, the high level uh, points of conversation. Mm-hmm. I'll start with that. The eagle eye view. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Well, that totally fits in um, because I was wanting to 
have you speak to the notion about what our time is worth compared to what value and saving of time we get when we outsource all kinds of things, including editing. So uh, that's right in with what you're talking about, right? It is. Yeah. And you can look at this from at least a couple of different angles for the sake of our conversation. One is, again, going back to what the financial goals are, not just what we want, but ultimately what we need. The conversation doesn't have to be overly complicated. I need to make X amount a month or X amount a year in order to pay my bills, put some money in the bank, et cetera. So there's that piece of it. And then you can break that down into you know 40 hours, call it you have two weeks of vacation or four weeks of vacation. So 48 weeks at you know 40 hours a week and do the math and figure out what it is that you need to be bringing in an hour. By the way, also considering cost of business and taxes involved. Mm-hmm. Once you've done that, you've got an hourly number. And of course, the, the kind of stereotypical conversation around delegation, whatever it is, editing, album design, administrative tasks, it centers around am I able to delegate that thing for less than what I'm worth an hour and then go spend my time on those things that might bring more value to my company? Right. And that's that's the second part of that is what I tend to lean more towards because photographers will say, well, it's expensive to outsource my editing. Yeah, sure. You might be able to save a couple hundred bucks in cash by doing your own editing work. And especially when you start doing the math that whatever that dollar figure per hour that you came up with, you multiply that times 10 hours of editing or 12 or 16 or 20 hours, then it gets really, really expensive. And you can now delegate that for you know a couple hundred bucks instead of the thousand dollars that you would have spent doing it yourself. But I think we need to take it a step further, which is, okay, that's great. That's important to know. We saved some, some money. And we certainly save some time, but what are we then doing with that time as business owners? Mm. Photographers put all this emphasis on editing being so important. That's really a conversation about them and their preferences. It doesn't actually have anything to do with building a business. If you can delegate editing or album design or administrative tasks or accounting or whatever it might be, what can you then do with that time that will make you even more money? Yes, your time is worth more than what you may be paying somebody, but with that time, I now can go do something or do things that will actually generate even more income for my business. So Mm. I'm saving money because I'm delegating something. I'm now making more money because I'm spending my time on things that will actually grow my business. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Working smarter, not harder. (laughs) Well, yes, kind of. The smarter part is creating airspace to then be able to do those things that, that elevate. Like for me, it's, Learn to be a better marketer, learn to sell better. Uh, I don't know, spiff up my branding, you know, spending time in ways that are going to generate more income. And for me, that are more fun. You know, I do like to edit my final wall portrait images myself. The creativity of that and the satisfaction is high, but all the other things in between. Um, I can certainly hand off to someone else up until that point where I'm wanting to craft a beautiful image just exactly, you know, not even that 3% grace for those. But but I'm spending time. I could be doing things that would generate more income. Correct. So it's a trade-off. Did that make any sense at all, what I just said? I think so. Yeah. You know, photographers talk a lot about the things that we like to do. You mentioned you enjoy a certain amount of editing. None of this conversation has to be either or. We can still mm-hmm. hold on to some of it, like you talked about. I think that's a great, it's a great reminder. 
we, even if we talk about delegating editing or delegating album design or dele- we can still do some of it. But if you delegate, let's say 80% of it or 90% of it, again, the amount of time savings there is incredible by itself. But now you have time, it, take a wedding photographer, for example, can go with that time and begin to develop a relationship with a wedding coordinator. In fact, as a wedding photographer, much of my business came from a relationship with a local wedding coordinator. Mm-hmm. And if I work on developing that relationship on a very genuine level, I'm I'm doing headshots for her for a new website, I'm photographing her family, and we're ultimately becoming friends. I now have a relationship in, in the case of this particular coordinator that generated thousands and thousands of mm-hmm. dollars of business for me. Not because I was sitting at my computer editing, but because I was doing something that was developing the relationship, right? That's right. that's the thought process that we have to shift to. Right, right. And back in, you know, the dinosaur days, we didn't have that extra part-time job of editing. It was, do I drive the film to the lab or do I mail it to them or do they pick up? And, that, and then it comes back and then we had to number it. And that was it. And... Then when digital came along, part of why I resisted for a long time is I knew it was like taking on another part-time job. So having that freedom to go do those things that bring in ideal clients, and in my case, I'm like you, um, I cultivated those wedding vendors, went to lunch with them, made phone calls, exactly, sent them little photography gifts that they would put out. Um refer them all the time, you know, just that got me six figure income year after year after year, because I cultivated relationships and um, didn't have to spend time editing. <laughs> so it's kind of lucky, you know, it's good news, bad news with film. Oh, well, Nathan, <laughs> I'm so glad you said yes to being on my show and you definitely have the voice for podcasting, I got to say. <laughs> Doesn't <laughs> he have you. a great voice, that. you guys? <laughs> and and shiny, nice white teeth. Too. Oh, thank you. <laughs> He's kind of handsome, so it's a pleasure. <laughs> oh, me. you're super kind. Thank you. No, it was truly a privilege to be, to be on the show. I really, truly appreciate oh, it. Good, good, good. So I have two quick questions. Uh, we're two and a half. So the half is, I know you have uh, something that you'd like to offer clients you had a free brand position consult can you tell us a little bit about how we could set that up you know what the simplest way to do that might just be that the first person that that sends me a a dm if you're okay with this lucy um, on on my instagram and and requests it i'm more than glad to to set that up with them we do as you mentioned a brand position consultation which is just an effort on my part to help a photographer clarify what makes their brand, their photography brand unique in their marketplace. And so we'll go through, I'll send you a questionnaire. You'll get a questionnaire in advance. And then during the podcast interview, we'll walk through your responses to that questionnaire. And ultimately I'll spend a little bit of time ahead of, ahead of time, looking at your marketplace, where you stand in your marketplace and help you craft a brand position statement that will signify your what's traditionally called a UVP, unique value proposition Mm -hmm. or a brand position. So we'll come up, we'll work on coming up with a brand position statement for your photography business. Such a deal. So the first person that goes to your Instagram Mm -hmm. and is that the at Nathan Holritz? You got it. 
N-A-T-H-A-N-H-O-L-R-I-T-Z. Yep. Okay. And then what's the best way to get in touch with you? Is that it or? You can you can do that. Um, you can also just email me, Nathan at photographersedit.com uh, is another way just to communicate with me. And then in general, if you just want to see what I'm up to, the different brands, you can just go to nathanholritz.com. Okay, doc. And what's your podcast again? Boca, B-O-K-E-H podcast, bocapodcast.com. And that's helping photographers build sustainable photography businesses. And then you mentioned earlier, Newbie, N-O-O-B-I-E, newbiepodcast.com. That's helping new photographers in their first three years of business, um, help helping simplify photography and photography business for those new photographers. Great. And I am booked to be on the show in a couple of weeks on- Coming the, up soon. The Boca. So we get to flip the table and- and uh, see what questions he has for me. Absolutely. I'm usually like, I'm the queen of sales. That's my superpower. So FYI. All right. And then the last question is, is there either something that you want to leave the listeners with or something you haven't shared that you want to be sure to, uh, you know, get in there as a parting thought? Mm. You know, there's this quote that's been kind of running in my head for years now, and it's very simply, it's what you make of it. Mm. I have a tattoo on my left, the inside of my left wrist. Lucy, you could see this on video. I was going to ask you what that meant. Yeah. So that that is the Japanese word. I mentioned growing up in Japan. That's the Japanese word, kakushin, which is the word belief or to believe. And fascinating thing about life, literally everything that we do in life is driven by a belief or set of beliefs, right? I talk into this microphone because I believe that you're going to be able to hear me. Fortunately, it's an accurate belief, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and we do, I sit down in a chair because I believe it's going to hold me up. So we, we act based on our beliefs on a day-to-day -day basis. Some of them are accurate and enable us to grow as an individual, as a business owner. Others may hurt us um, or hurt our choices as a business owner. But the cool thing is, and I have a tattoo on my, the inside of my right wrist, which is... Okay, let me see that one. This is the, the Japanese word, sentaku, and that's the word choice. Mm. So I have the ability to choose my belief or beliefs, and that will ultimately enable me to craft or create the life that I want to. So mm. ultimately, it's how we frame it. It's what we make of it. We have the ability to choose that. I love that. And I agree a thousand percent. So Nathan, thank you so much for... Uh, being on the show. And I know that people are going to get so much value from listening. Remember, everybody, I'll be doing a little bit of a wrap up after Nathan and I have a little chat when you're not around. So, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so thanks, Nathan. Thank you. Well, I didn't go far, but I'm back. <laughs> and I want to see if I can do just a quick wrap up. So what comes to mind particularly is about how we think about letting someone else edit for us. First of all, we talked about different things that different companies can do, or, you know, some do one or two or all of the above, but we can have our work cold, we can have it basic color correction, and then we can have those fine Photoshop details. Uh, done for us, which saves us time and I think can definitely earn us money if we spend the free time doing those kinds of things that A, bring us joy or B, bring us more fabulous clients that invest well. But the 
thought that if we release some of that perfectionism, that it doesn't have to be exactly what we consider perfect, then we are free. I'd like you to drink that in. Uh, I'm going to. That something done really well is what's important. It doesn't have to be exactly the way we would do it. So I love that. Um, we talked about color and and just generally, I don't know, we just talked about color in general. And maybe it surprises you that there are different ways to color balance. And maybe it won't because you have been doing some of that yourself or you see the difference when you get things back from labs. We talked about whether picking a style is important or not and how some styles can be dated years from now. So um, classic is a safety measure, but not discounting the fact that you may have a particular look that you love that your clients love. And he talked about creating a workflow where we can reach our goals, our financial goals, our business goals, money goals, wait, money and financials the same, um, but also how we spend our time. And if we're living our life, spending it doing uh, what has high value to us. So that's it for now. Stay tuned. LucyDumasCoaching.com has a 10 big ideas for marketing in the real world book you can download. And uh, just know that I'm sending you a great big hug and a thank you for listening to my show. You have been listening to The Highly Profitable Photographer with Lucy Dumas. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate, subscribe, review, and share. To connect one-on-one and learn more about our coaching programs, just go to lucydumascoaching.com. Until next time, go have fun photographing and selling your work.